Welcome to the Catch 22 Minutes podcast, where we discuss some of the UK's major social challenges. We speak to frontline experts, industry leaders, and people with lived experience, all in pursuit of ideas for reforming public services. My name is Josie Cochran, Comms Manager at Catch 22, and in this season, alongside our guests, we'll be focused on solutions. Solutions which could impact every aspect of the justice sector, from how we support victims to the way individuals are supported in our prisons and in the community. Restorative justice gives victims the opportunity to be heard and the offender the chance to repair the harm done, all through a supportive, controlled environment. It can involve an in-person facilitated discussion, letters or recorded messages between victim and offender. Research suggests it results in a 14% reduction in the frequency of reoffending and an 85% victim satisfaction rate. In this episode, we are joined by Detective Superintendent Chris Baker from Leicestershire Police and Charlotte Colkin, Director of the Restorative Engagement Forum, which delivers restorative justice across the UK. Both organisations have worked closely with our Victim First service based in Leicestershire, which facilitates restorative justice sessions for victims of crime. Here, caseworker Jazz shares his experience of a recent RJ case he facilitated involving a mother accused of harassment and her daughter, the victim involved in an abusive relationship. Um, we developed a script for the pair of them to eventually meet and work together through, like I said, over quite a long period of time to see if we could actually heal their divisions and see if there's any way for the family to get back together again. We agreed after a long time to get the two together. They both consented to wanted to meet. Both were very nervous. Both were very tearful before the meeting. The meeting was very structured. Both of them knew the questions and answers uh, that they would be looking to ask. Um, so it was a very structured and boundaried conversation that they were in going forward it did heal the relationship between both of them Uh, they're both now seeing each other and they are healing going forward Charlotte I'll start with you for those who maybe aren't familiar with the term restorative justice can you just give us a bit of an outline of what it is and how a restorative justice case might work hi Josie so We do restorative justice and restorative practice, and there's a difference. And they're both practiced a lot all over the place. So, for example, I work with a premiership football club. Well, they're not doing restorative justice. Restorative practice is where you look at creating healthy cultures. Restorative justice is when it's not gone so well. And something's happened which has caused harm, difficulty, And it brings people together to have a positive dialogue, to give the conversation back to them, to help them to move on, have a voice and reclaim their power. It is not to do with forgiveness. It is to do with people voluntarily and willingly having a conversation because they've got unanswered questions or they feel they want the person who directly affected them to hear the impact of their actions. And I think one of the problems with restorative justice is that people have quite prescriptive thinking about it that isn't true. 
Thanks, Charlotte. And we'll we'll go into a bit more on the specifics on that in a minute. But um, Chris, could you tell us a bit about your work and how Leicestershire Police are using restorative justice? Yeah, and morning. Thank you for inviting me along. Um, I'm Detective Superintendent responsible for m- mainstream investigations, um, and, and but I also have portfolio responsibilities for out-of-court disposals and victim services. And restorative justice fits right in the middle of those two portfolios. We do deal with an awful lot of criminal justice outcomes out of court, particularly post-pandemic when the courts were were overloaded with cases and there's still a significant backlog in the uh, criminal justice system. But also, court, a criminal sanction at court is not necessarily always the right thing for the victim or the offender. So what we do is look at how we can prevent the offender from re-offending, but also deliver that satisfaction for the victim. What I would like to do is use restorative justice more than we do currently, and I think this is probably a trend generally in the police service, to deal with the offenders offending, but also swing the pendulum back a bit towards the service for the victim. I think for the last few years, we've focused upon interventions with offenders and perhaps lost the victim a little bit in that. So I, I, I do believe restorative justice is where is where we can redress some of that balance. And we're working with Catch-22 and Victim First to, to do that. A lot of times in kind of low-level, lower-level incidents, the system is set up to only offer one option, which is, you know, go down a, exactly as you said, giving evidence right-wrong route. And actually, that's not necessarily what people who've been harmed want. In fact, the evidence shows is that what people want is for the person to not do it again. Now, if that's the outcome they want rather than the person to be punished, what system is in place to support them getting that, which is the person not doing it again? And actually, restorative justice is far more likely to make that happen. I would agree with that entirely. I certainly think there's value in the offender seeing the effects and the impact of of their actions. That doesn't necessarily happen when the matter goes to court. Yes, we do have means where a victim can make a a, a victim impact statement in a a court hearing and the offender hears that read out in court, either by the victim or, or by the prosecutor. But that's a more removed process, a more formal process, and it doesn't, I think, bring them face-to-face you know, face with the consequences of what they've done. It's a more punitive hearing rather than a, a restorative one or a preventative one. Yeah. We did an episode on the court delays and kind of alternative approaches to fixing these delays instead of thinking we've got to get everyone through court. But what do you think are the main challenges to restorative justice being more of a core approach within the police? One, one of the first issues is that I'm sort of addressing is the knowledge of frontline officers and what can be done. Leicestershire Police, as well as other forces nationally, have seen quite a significant turnover of officers in the, in the last two to three years. So well, more than 50% of our frontline officers now have less than three years experience. That's just the way the recruitment patterns have worked. It's helping officers understand what they can do, what, what's within our guidelines, and we have policies around the use of out-of-court disposals, and then encouraging them to have that conversation with the victim at the first point of contact. For me, the question to ask is, would you like the person who's done this to you to know the effect it's had on you? And I think that's a very powerful interaction. 
Um, so when we refer a crime and a victim to victim first, they will have that conversation uh, and then the officer in the case will be contacted and, and told that the victim wishes to engage in that in that uh, process and victim first deals with all of that for us with with their uh, trained team. Where, where I'm going with, with um, our um, victim's portfolio is to listen to the victim's voice. What does the victim want? I think we focused, as I said, a little bit too much on referring people to interventions that stop them offending and, and, and actually putting them in front of the victim so that it can hear directly from, from that person how their actions have impacted upon their life is a powerful preventative um, message. We were one of the first three forces in the country to pilot a two-tier out-of-court disposal framework. We started that in 2014. Mm. That will enter into legislation next year. And I'm involved in some national project work around, around that because we were a pioneer for all. So as of next year, available out-of-court disposals will be a, a caution. Uh, and there's two different types of caution, a community caution or, or one where somebody does get... Basically, if you don't comply with the, the, the caution, you go to court or you get a fine. The other outcome, which is where we really have a, a significant number of, of positive outcomes, is community resolution. Um, that's the official term, um, but as part of a community resolution, reparation or restorative justice in, in engaging with the victim is one of those options that we're, uh, that is available uh, and that we're, we're quite keen to use more. I mean, I think this. I think there's a lot in there that's interesting that Chris has said. Firstly, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I can't remember what the stats are, but it's between one and a half and three percent of victims are told about restorative justice, which is phenomenally low. Right at the beginning of the crime happening, people are justifiably angry, and that might not be the time for them to hear about it. And I'm just going to tell you about my sister, whose restaurant was burnt down, and uh, the man got arson with intent to endanger life. Big crime. 10 years. Um, and after about a year, what was playing on her mind and would not go away was, I just want to find out from him, you're the same age as me, what are you doing? What are you playing at? And I said, go and ask him. And she did. She went and had a restorative justice conversation with, with him. So right at the beginning, probably wouldn't have been the time to ask her because... I don't think she would have been ready, but what happened was she had stuff playing on her mind. And it was a phenomenally productive conversation for both parties. When we work with Victims First in Leicestershire, what we do is we train the staff to listen for things that are indicating, like what my sister said, that are indicating that they, they have more needs than are being met by the criminal justice system. And sometimes they don't even use the word restorative justice because people have a lot of preconceptions and assumptions about it. For example, it has to be a face-to-face -face dialogue. Well, it isn't. You know, it can be a million other ways. It can be one question you want answered. One question. How did you get in? I can't. It's, I had one case, literally, the guy was like, I'm a security officer. I've been going mad work, trying to work out how, I, how the guy got in. So it might just be one question that needs being answered. So I think we have to get past assumptions, preconceptions, which might affect whether people tell people about it, uh, the assumption that it's face-to-face, -face, and be better at listening to what people are asking for. 
Do you think restorative justice is more suitable to some crimes than others? I think the more serious the crime, the bigger the impact, the longer it takes, the more the risk assessment. And I think one of the other problems in terms of assumptions that people make about restorative justice is that we just go off in a little silo and do it. Well, you know, when I'm working on a really complex case, I'm working with all the agencies who are involved with people. So it's not silo working. I think there's very few cases that aren't appropriate for restorative justice. It's much more to do with the conditions, like are the people willing? Are they taking accountability? Uh, Are they retributive or restorative? There's lots more about, it's not about the crime, it's about where people are at. Any thoughts on that, Chris? Very often, and it does frustrate me, I know the police service has been guilty of this in the past, we have process and procedures and we shoehorn people and their wishes into what we want rather than what they want. I think listening to what the victim wants is really important to see that enshrining the victim's code of practice uh, and that's a, on a statutory basis now it, it is so important for the police service. What about when a victim isn't ready to forgive and doesn't want to see anything less than prison time, but you sort of, you know that restorative justice would be a better approach? I, I really want to get out here that it's not about forgiveness. That, that you know, I have zero expectation of a victim forgiving a harmer. That is not what it's about. It is about them having a voice, asking questions, being able to move on and reclaiming their power. That's really different to forgiving. I think it's a completely unreasonable expectation to expect forgiveness. I also don't think forgiveness is something where you go, oh, I forgive you. And then you wake up the next morning and go, no, I don't. Totally normal. (laughs) So, you know, I, I just, that's a different conversation, but it's not about forgiveness. If a victim is feeling retributive, there's something in place for that. It's called the criminal justice system. People have different views of what justice looks like. All I'm really concerned with is, can we create a system whereby people stop harming other people? And what are the methods that are going to create that? Restorative justice isn't an alternative to um, a criminal justice outcome. It it can be, certainly with with, uh, out-of-court disposal, but it can also run in parallel with the criminal justice process. And certainly I'm aware of a case here in Leicestershire. It's a very complex case. It's it's a homicide. There is some work going on around the deceased victim's family and the offender and them understanding his motivations. He is serving a a life sentence for murder, but that restorative justice process is still still being worked through. So it can sort of work in, in parallel. I'm I'm not saying that people who harm people don't need to be removed from society for the benefit of society. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is what we want to do is create a situation where they don't harm people again. And I mean, I've done several, many uh, homicide and manslaughter cases, so I completely agree with Chris. A lot of people think of restorative justice as being the pink and fluffy solution, and it's not, because unless the harmer takes accountability, you can't do it. So, so... The assumption that, oh, everybody goes through restorative justice. Well, you can't do restorative justice if someone won't take accountability for what they did, because that's going to, I mean, how's that going to make life better for the victim? They're just going to be arguing, no, I did, no, yes, you did, no, 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 I didn't, yes, you did, no, I didn't. I mean, that's not going to help anybody. So so actually, unless you've got uh, accountability, which is authentic, which is why we risk assess, um, you can't do it anyway. So 
it's only going to happen in cases where there's a willingness to step into the space to have a difficult conversation. It's not easy about, you know, something that happened that wasn't okay. So who makes that assessment that genuine accountability is there? Because it's based on a lot of trust of fellow humans that that accountability is genuine and you're not just trying to get a relatively easy ride out of the justice system. It's surprisingly easy to be able to risk assess whether someone can do empathy or not. And, and in, in practical terms, that will be a conversation between the, 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 the case, the restorative justice caseworker and, and the, the offender. An easy indicator, if it's a matter that's gone to court, is whether the uh, offender pleaded or, or, or not. We've talked a bit in previous episodes about how you prove the impact of what you're doing. Loads of services are measured on the data that they can provide. And restorative justice is pretty difficult to demonstrate data-wise that you're having impact. So how do you balance that? How do you manage that? I'm fascinated by the obsession with quantitative assessment. I'm intrigued why people think that that is the only measurable way of measuring success. Because it isn't. (laughs) (laughs) There are some some good, something that victim services have developed, which asks a series of questions like, how often do you now think about the crime compared to before? But I think it's far more qualitative. I also think it's a human right to be able to have a conversation when the crimes happen to you. So I'm not entirely sure we should be measuring it. And Chris, thoughts on that? I share those frustrations you just heard to some degree. In fact, this has been a real challenge for the, the National Victims Portfolio, is how do we capture the quality of, of what, we're, what we're doing? We, we do find generally that where we provide a, an out-of-court disposal and we've engaged with the victim in, in the right way, with, with empathy. We do find that does have a, a positive uh, effect on satisfaction rates. But yeah, it, it is generally by by surveys. And then and we, we're doing this in Leicestershire now with our uh, out-of-court disposal to, to, to measure re-offending rates where we've put in place interventions for offenders. And also, I think it's absolutely impossible to pin down, and there's one of my best friends, Margaret Heffernan, does some great piece of work around this and has got some good TED Talks about it, about, you know, if an offender stops reoffending, is it because of the restorative justice? Is it because of the interventions they did in prisons? Is it because their nan, nan got sick and they suddenly realised they wanted to change their ways before their nan passed? Who knows? Who knows what it is that mattered? And the only other thing I want to say about this measuring is that the only part of the restorative experience that my sister didn't like was the survey. She said the whole thing was so relational. And then I get sent this, out of one to five, how satisfied are you with the service? I mean, it's like, what? What? And I think we have to be really careful here. Who's it for? does get used in the commissioning of services. So you've got a little yep. bit of a, a circular argument. Yep. Um, to commission the services you, that victims need, there needs to be a, a business case or some data that would uh, underline the need for that service. No pun intended, but catch 22. <laughs> but the other thing is, is that, you know, there was a seven-year survey done which proved the efficacy of restorative justice. We don't need to be having that conversation anymore. It's like we're not having conversations about whether plumbing is a good thing. So maybe we should just be having different conversations about actually how is it, what are the blockers and why aren't more 
victims. I mean, that's measly one and a half to three percent getting access to it. I mean, what, what I can say is through, through some of the groups I'm involved in nationally through the out-of-court disposals and the um, victim services work is that police forces are, there is a body of opinion that we need to be using restorative justice much more than we do. So just to finish, one thing from both of you, what do you think we could do to implement more restorative justice across the system? Honestly, I think teach it in schools. Teach kids how to communicate effectively, resolve their own difficulties, so that the idea of having conversations that are difficult, maybe the idea of restorative justice when things go wrong wouldn't be so weird. Thanks, Charlotte. And Chris? The easy one for me would be greater officer awareness, putting that front and centre in their thinking when they are dealing with investigations. The use of RJ as a, an out-of-court option all alongside a criminal prosecution, I think should be front and centre in, in officers' minds. And um, that will be a matter of a matter of training and awareness. But of course, the more you put it in an officer's mind, the more they, they consider it. And let's be honest, they, the, the, the figures, I think it was less than 3% of victims were offered um, on J. If you increase those conversations, then inevitably it's the resources that are required to uh, to make it happen. I also think we ought to look further afield rather than make assumptions that the way our criminal justice system works is the best way. I was in a school the other day and I, a teacher came over to me at the end and she said that when she's from New Zealand, it was a very serious incident. They did restorative justice with the perpetrator before it went to court and they were a part of the decision-making of the sentencing. I know, both of your eyebrows have gone right up. Now, I'm not saying that's right or wrong, but I am saying how interesting, how much the victim is a part of that whole process and is invested with it. It was actually um, to do with a, a driving incident that resulted in a death. It wasn't intentional. So interesting, right? Mm, yeah, very Doing something like that is putting a lot of kind of waiting on the victim's mentality. You don't think Not so? I think, I think we have to be really careful about the whole concept of emotional labour. Because actually, working on the principle that a victim uh, isn't capable, I'm not entirely sure whether we're, we're giving people credit. I think that for some people it wouldn't be their choice. And for some people it absolutely would be their need. And the fact that there's a system that can accommodate that, I think is extraordinary.